Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-16. through 16. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold that, though perishable, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy, For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours made careful search and inquiry, inquiring about the person or time that the Spirit of Christ within them indicated when it testified in advance to the sufferings destined for Christ and the subsequent glory. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in regard to the things that have now been announced to you through those who brought you good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, discipline yourselves, set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, Do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, friends, it is such a gift to be together this morning. And as we look towards 2020, I I really do love these seasons of newness. Like, I know they get a little bit cliche, where it's like, okay, like, there's nothing that has changed fundamentally about any one of you, right? You didn't go to bed on December 31st and wake up as a new human being with, like, superpowers to to engage all sorts of new disciplines, right? And if, if you're anything like me, when you make resolutions, you don't actually consider reality when you make them. You're just like, I'm going to do everything right now all at once. And sometimes this can be beneficial to me. Other times this is a little bit of a problem. But if you have this sense that 2020 is going to be uh, just something different for you, can I just invite you to lean into that? 
Um, that's okay. I, I think God wants to take our impulse towards newness and do a new thing in our midst. And so uh, we welcome that here at Ecclesia. We, we're welcoming just the opportunities that lay before us to serve the neighborhood, to proclaim the name of Jesus here in this space. And so 2020 is going to be a great year. Well, have you ever had a profound sense, just one of those moments that you didn't quite know where home was? You weren't really sure what it meant to be at home? Now, for me, I lived in a lot of different places growing up, and one of the places I lived was a place called Mississippi. That's right. And when I was leaving Mississippi, I'm not really sure what happened. I could call my parents and get the full story, but I remember this distinctly. We thought we were leaving before we actually did. And that can be fine, except when they throw you a going away party. And so I'm in my elementary school in third grade. Last day I'm supposed to be in Mississippi for school. I show up, the, the students and the teachers throw me a great party. Hey, so glad our paths crossed. Really grateful to have gotten to know you. Have a great summer, all that stuff. See you later. Now, the problem is, when I got home that day, I was told we weren't actually moving yet. And the next week was another school week. We still had about, you know, three or four weeks left before school let out for the summer. So after having a going away party, I had to go back to school. And, you know, people are looking at you with that little bit of suspicion, like, do you just want attention it's like, no, no, I'm, I'm really good. I really thought we were leaving. And then, just to kind of add on to the whole circumstance, once we finally did leave, we moved to a place called Albuquerque, New Mexico. Now, I don't remember much about Albuquerque, New Mexico. But we moved there. We were staying in a hotel, and my parents decided, you know, it's probably a good idea if you go ahead and start school. So I went to this school. I don't remember much about it. There was turquoise everywhere, which just seems to be like a New Mexico thing. There, the school was called the Mustangs. They were building all these buildings, so we were in these fabricated buildings. And I went to school, and I've been the new kid in school quite a bit. I, I think I've been to about 12 or 13 schools in my life. So you kind of, you, you, you begin to build up muscles for what it means for your first day of school. You realize that most people aren't going to talk to you. They're just going to kind of size you up. So you, you sort of respond to that in kind. So I would, you know, when I was the new kid in school, just kind of play it cool. I would know nobody's probably going to talk to me for a couple of days. If you get to sit with somebody at lunch, that's a bonus. You welcome that. So I, I've been through all these gymnastics several times. And so I did this in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Did the first day of school thing. The awkward sort of, okay, I know you're not going to talk to me. You see me, but we're not going to chat. That kind of thing. And then I get home that day, and my parents tell me, we're not staying here. So I went to school in Albuquerque, New Mexico for all of one day. And third grade me had this profound sense of what does it mean to be at home? And for the Christian, as we approach this book that we're going to be spending the, the first uh, several weeks of our time together in this book called First Peter, it's a letter. This is the question that kind of underrides the whole of the text 
is, is these Christians who, who historically have been at home in the world are now no longer finding themselves at home in the world because of their conviction to Jesus Christ as Lord. They're walking the same streets, but they're seeing things differently now. And in the story of the Bible, you have this unique dynamic that happens. You see, God is about this world, this space, these streets, these neighborhoods, these homes. God is about this space. He created a world of, of trees and of branches and of oceans and of beaches, and he called it good. Like, don't spiritualize away the world that God made. It is the world that we can touch and feel and sense. This is the world that God is inviting us into. And yet... In the midst of that, there is always this movement for the people of God. Abraham, the first call that he receives from God is to go. Go from your homeland to a place that I will show you. So within this world that God has made, he's always calling his people out. He's always calling his people out. And he says, go deeper into the world, but be different from it. God's call is never to separate ourselves from the world as if we could create this holy enclave where we can uh, live the Jesus stuff and all the, all the bad stuff, all the threatening stuff would be out there. No, no, no. He calls us to the very places where these things intersect. But as he calls us to go, and Jesus will refrain this call in Matthew 28 as he's resurrected from the dead, and he says, go into all nations. As we hear this call, what we find is that as we go, God is calling us to be different in the world, to embrace a different posture. And so fundamental to Peter's call to us this morning is this sense to go deeper, to embrace the world, to serve it more uh, open-handedly, to give more of ourselves to it. And yet, as we go deeper in relationship, as we go deeper in service, to become different from it. And for many of us, we have this tension because our American culture, and if you, if you pay attention to politics, or if you pay attention uh, to the things that, that are going on in the news, a lot of times there's this narrative that says that Christians are at home with everything that American culture presents to us. And what we find as we read the scriptures is there's something quite different going on. There's a very different narrative that God is inviting us into, a narrative not co-opted by one political party or the other. A narrative not co-opted by us and them. God is inviting us to go deeper into the world and to be different from it. And the temptation always, as it was for the people of God in the narrative of Scripture, as it is for the people as we walk the streets of America, is to make our home in a place that God did not call us to. The author James K. Smith talks about this tension. He says, the question is whether this tension becomes a catalyst for pilgrimage, does this sense of not-at-homeness cause us to respond and to go? Or whether we try to decamp in this distant country, turning our exile into an arrival, suppressing our sense that there must be something more, that another shore is calling. He goes on to say, we are not just pilgrims on a sacred march to a religious site. We are migrants, strangers, resident aliens en route to a homeland that we've never been to. God is the country that we're looking for. And James K.A. Smith is channeling St. Augustine, who would say, Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. 
And so at the heart of the Christian faith is this call to be a pilgrim, a call to go, but not a call to fly away from the world, but a call to embrace it. And so 1 Peter is one of the best books that I know in the Bible as it pertains to how to look at the world through the lens of the gospel story, through the lens of what Jesus has done, and to see every part of life. There's instructions for husbands and wives. There's instructions for how you relate to the government. And so I'm so excited for this journey we're going to go on as a church because I think it is so important in this moment, especially 2020 is no small year in the story of our country. Uh, There's so many things going on more broadly. We have to learn how to see our life through the lens of the gospel story. And so Peter gives us that perspective. And so today, we're going to start diving into his words and hear them addressed to us. So Peter begins in verse 1 of 1 Peter. And if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up. He writes, To the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in abundance. So Peter first identifies himself and his audience. Peter talks about his audience and he names the places that they're in. The places that they're in are these Roman provinces in what we call Asia Minor now. And so his sense of who he's writing to, he's writing to a series of churches, not just one church. And so you kind of have this universal word for these churches. And, and there are discussions about the authorship of Peter. We're just going to say it's written by Peter because that's what he identifies it as. Now, Peter identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, if I were Peter, I would forever identify myself as like Peter, the one who walked on water. Or even like, you know, Peter, the guy who chopped out that dude's ear that Jesus healed. Like, I would have a a very rich, evocative uh, illustration for myself. But Peter is much more humble than I am. And he addresses his remarks to a series of locations. And so this is a circular letter. And the thing I love about that is it sort of has this universal tinge to it. These churches that Peter writes to, even though Peter was designated as the apostle to the Jewish people, Primarily, these churches are made up of Gentile Christians, people for whom the story of the Old Testament, the story of Israel, was not their native tongue. And Peter describes them as those dispersed, those scattered in the diaspora, those set apart throughout the Roman Empire. And this this term was historically one that was used to describe the people of Israel. And so Peter, in every way, is sort of immersing them and inviting them into that story. And we're going to see more of that in just a moment. But Peter begins his letter. And and I think he really raises three questions for us that I want us to keep in our mind as we approach today's text. First, what has God done? The second question is, who are we in light of what God has done? And the third question is, how do we begin to live out of that identity? And so that's kind of the framework that we're going to approach this text from. So he goes on in 1 Peter, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable, is tested by fire. This genuineness may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy, for you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And Peter starts off, he starts off with this like immense expression of God's goodness, of what God has done. He almost just piles on the adjectives, just saying, it's so big, it is so rich. And he starts with God's mercy. Now, for Peter, God's mercy is not just an idea. For Peter, God's mercy is something that he has literally tasted on his lips. If you look back to John chapter 21, there's a scene where Jesus is baking uh, breakfast on the shore, and Peter is fishing in the water, and he sees Jesus from a long way off, and he jumps in the water, and he swims to him. And as, G- as Peter pulls up to this breakfast scene that Jesus is preparing for him over charcoal fire, Jesus asks him three questions, the same question, over and over again. He says, Peter, do you love me? Three times Jesus asks Peter this question. You see, Peter, prior to this whole scene, had denied Jesus three times. Peter had all the bluster in the world. He said to Jesus before he was arrested, he said, Jesus, though everybody denies you, I will never deny you. And Jesus looked at Peter with compassion, and he said to him, Peter, before the rooster crows, before the rooster ushers in the dawn, you will have denied me three times. And Peter is unlike the rest of the disciples. All the other disciples just kind of slink away into the night. They don't verbally deny Jesus, but Peter sort of remains in the shadows. And each time somebody comes to Peter and they say, hey, you, you were with Jesus, right? You're, you're one of his disciples. He says, no, no. At one point, he's on the verge of cursing. Verbally, viscerally, Peter denies Jesus three times. And so Peter goes to this uh, moment, and he doesn't know what's going to happen. He thinks Jesus was lost forever. Imagine if your last interaction with someone was you betraying them, you denying them. This is the sense that Peter has as as he pulls up on the shore as Jesus is baking him breakfast over a charcoal fire. Interestingly, the only other time that word charcoal is used in the New Testament is when Peter is warming himself around a fire, and somebody asks Peter in that moment, they say, do you know Jesus? And he says, no, I don't know him. And so there's a symmetry here. But for Peter, as he pulls up to this breakfast that Jesus has prepared for him, and he hears these three questions, and he tastes the meal that Jesus has prepared for him, he experiences God's abundant mercy. And friends, this morning, Peter is inviting us in the same way to understand that God's mercy is not just an idea. It's not just for something that's for other people. It is for each one of us. It is a mercy that meets us in the real and lived reality of our everyday lives. 
Peter is inviting us from his own story to see the goodness of God. And then Peter goes to great lengths to describe the unfailing nature of God's promises. Our inheritance is imperishable. It is undefiled. It is unfading under the lock and key in heaven. Now, imagine how powerful this assurance must have been for these people. So you have to understand, for the people that Peter uh, is, are writing to, these people who are receiving this letter, they're suffering the weight of social shame and ostracism. For them, religion or faith is not just this additional add-on. It's not just this personally chosen thing that they kind of do in light of everything else that they do. No, for them, their declaration that Jesus is the Lord of their life means that the emperor Caesar is not Lord of their life. In their culture, in this region, these regions that Peter writes to, the Christians would refuse to offer sacrifices to the emperor. They would refuse to engage in festivals to worship the local gods and goddesses. Now you have to understand that for these people, when they saw the Christians refusing to participate in these things, it wasn't just like, oh, that's their choice. They've, they've chosen not to do that. These people saw the Christians as a threat to their very well-being. Friends, if this culture was immersed in a, in a sense of gods and goddesses. And each city often had a god or goddess that the city was devoted to. And if you failed to appease that god, then you would incur the wrath of that god. And so for these people who are refusing to participate in the civic um, exercises, the civic things that these people are doing to appease these gods, they saw the Christians as the people who were threatening their very livelihood. It made the Christians stick out in the world. And this is what Peter is talking about when he says, you've been exposed to trials, you've been exposed to shame, because you refuse to go with the flow of the world. You refuse to assimilate. You refuse to be like everybody else because you know that your heart and your conviction is bound to a one who claims authority over all things. And so Peter is writing to a group of people who are enduring incredible social shame. They're being highlighted and outcast and labeled as people who are against the good of society. And you hear this in our culture, right? You hear this, these things begin to converge upon people who are trying to live faithfully who may have different convictions about things that our society has deemed dogmatic. And so Peter writes to a world that is not all that removed from our own. And so for the recipients of Peter's letter, he starts with this sense that your, your assurances, your promises, your hope is unfailing. There is nothing that could take it away from you. Even though everything in your life may seem so tenuous, everything in your life may seem so fragile because you are being subjected to this kind of shame. For the recipients of Peter's letter, Peter begins with their identity they are those who have received, as he says, a new birth and a living hope. They, they participate in the life of the Father and the Spirit and the Son, not because of anything that they have done, but because of the beautiful gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And though their life is uncertain, hard-pressed, and imperiled, they are heirs of that promise, and it is sure 
and steadfast. Peter, what he's doing is he's offering perspective on their current situation. So he's saying, this is what God has done. And he says, this is who you are in light of that. And, and first, let me emphasize one, one thing I don't think he's doing here. Peter's not saying, oh, you know, like you're suffering now. It's really hard. Your life has been subjected to this kind of cultural pressure, but it's all good. It's all going to be okay because there's heaven and stuff. And if you've ever been through a season of suffering, you know that well-meaning people may try to offer you perspective. And their perspective may be right. They may say things like to you like, oh, it's going to be fine. That's true. Probably, right? Or they may say something like to you, no, you know, some people have it worse. And while all of that may be true, it is far from the truth that Peter is trying to invite his audience into. Peter is setting the stage for the way that he is going to relate the sufferings of Jesus Christ to the suffering of his audience. He is saying, don't buy the lie that because you are enduring suffering that somehow God has abandoned you. What he's saying, in fact, is that your, your sense of, of friction with the culture at large, your refusal to live in the way of the world is actually bearing witness to the fact that you are living like Jesus. Jesus resisted the empire. Pilate asked him, don't you know that I have power to crucify you? And Jesus says, you have no power over me if it were not granted to you from above. Jesus is drawing near to us in our suffering because Jesus overcomes the world by suffering. And friends, so often when we endure hardship, when we endure trial, we fail to see this sense that, that the, the Christian life, this story that Peter is, is telling and declaring to us, calls us to a way that is different from the, 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 the vast majority of our culture. And Peter is trying to give his audience a lens, and it's the lens of the gospel, to see everything in our world through the eyes of what God has done. Who that means we are in light of that and how we are to live in the world. So he goes on. In verses 6 and 7, Peter talks about the tests and the trials that the audience is enduring. And he says to us, he says, you can rejoice in those trials. He says, you can, you can rejoice and, and declare victory in those moments because Jesus is drawing near to you. And a quick note, I, I think this is so important. Peter is talking about suffering because we're living differently from the world. There's this kind of other kind of suffering that, that is the, the, the sort of thing that happens in our lives. These moments, you know, a death in the family, um, you know, brokenness in our relationships. That's not the kind of suffering. Peter's not saying, hey, God's given you that kind of suffering so he can test you. No. Those are the kind of moments where Jesus is drawing near is drawing near in his uh, experience that is like our own. Peter's talking about what he'll say later is suffering for doing right. That, friends, when we live, as we live as people who are advocates for justice, as we live as people who are advocates for peace, especially in moments like right now, it begins to stick out from the larger flow of the wider world. When we say that we have a way towards holiness that God is inviting us to that is different from the world's, that is not, you know, the world can't quite make sense of, that's the kind of suffering that Peter has in mind. The kind of suffering, as he'll later say, is suffering for doing right. And so if you came in here with suffering this morning, understand there are different levels and layers to that. And in verses 8 and 9, Peter transitions to the next section 
of his opening. He describes a life lived by faith. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him, for you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, you would think that the greatest evidence that we could ever have of Jesus' resurrection would be to see him. But Peter says something quite different here. He says the greatest evidence that you could have is not some vision that he is alive, but rather that you would be immersed in the presence of the living God, that you would see that this hope is a living hope that gives you a new life that transforms your world. And salvation, in this sense, is not the absence of trials. Oftentimes, salvation is the presence of trials. Salvation is the presence of God illuminating and transforming our lives, even in the midst of these moments that are hard, even in the midst of moments that would call us to assimilate or capitulate to the world around us. And Peter writes in verse 10, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours made careful search and inquiry, inquiring about the person or time that the Spirit of Christ within them indicated when it testified in advance of the sufferings destined for Christ in the subsequent glory. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In regard to the things that have now been announced to you through those who brought you good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look into. Now, it may seem to us that Peter takes a weird turn. He's talking about suffering. He's talking about, you know, what does it mean to live a faithful life in the midst of a culture that would would sort of compress us into its image? And he starts talking about the prophets. Now, you have to remember that this church was largely comprised of Gentile Christians. Again, people that were not familiar with the Old Testament story of God. When Peter talks about the prophets, He's talking about the, the, these um, stories of old. He's talking about stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. He's talking about Isaiah and Jeremiah. For the Gentile Christians who had come into the, the, the faith in these churches in Asia, these were not their stories. These were not the stories of their heritage. These were not the stories that they were familiar with. And what Peter is saying to those people He's saying, these stories are now your story. Paul will talk about you've been grafted into this story. There is a thing that God has been doing ever since the beginning of the world. And now you are a part of it. You are to embrace and immerse your perspective in light of these stories. And so he immerses them in this story. And, and a phrase that I have been meditating on that, that really stuck out to me as I started um, reading this book several months ago, as I started preparing uh, what I thought God was wanting to do through this series, is verse 13. Peter writes, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. In this sense, we've started with our identity. We've started with what God has done. But now Peter turns to us and he says, Therefore, this is what you are to do. Prepare yourself for action. Prepare your mind. Discipline yourselves. And as I think about the moment that our church is leaning into, as I think about the moment that the broader church in America is leaning into, 
I think that this is a word for us. Discipline yourselves. You have to begin to wrap your mind and your perspective around the gospel story and to see, as Peter invites us to in this passage, see every part of our lives as a part and a reflection of what God has done in the world. Peter has established our identity. He's saying, you are chosen, you are sons, and you are daughters, but now it's time. Now it's time for you to live out of that identity. And the first thing I think he invites us to do is to discipline ourselves. And I think two ways that we see this in First Peter, in these verses that we've read. So what does it mean to discipline ourselves? How do we answer that question that we started with? How do we live out of the identity that God has given us? We discipline ourselves. And what does that mean? Peter starts talking about the prophets. And I think he's saying to us, we have to begin to see every part of our life, every part of our story in light of this Jesus story. You know, it's real easy for us to begin to compartmentalize our lives and to say, okay, you know, I believe in Jesus. That's my faith. You know, I'm a, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican. That's my politics. Um, I, you know, I'm from New Jersey or I'm from New York. That's where I'm from. What Jesus is offering us is not compartmentalization but congruence. Jesus is offering us a way that makes sense of all of life. And we're going to see this as we go throughout Peter as he gives instructions for us on how to live our daily lives in light of who God is. And I think as Peter turns towards the prophets, as he says, this is your story. Friends, we have to begin to immerse ourselves in the story. Now, every time I do this, I'm so aware of the dynamic here. It is not a rare thing for a pastor to get up in front of a group of people and tell them, you know what, you want to grow in light and be like Jesus? Read your Bible and pray. You're like, you know, like, do you want to lose weight? Eat less? It's like, oh, I had never thought of that. Thank you. I understand that the Bible is a hard book to read. I understand that the story gets muddled. And for, uh, for us, we have so much that we have to disentangle. But can I, can I make you this pledge? That if you're willing, I'm willing if you're willing to start saying, like, I want to embrace this story. I want to know what God is doing in the world, what he's done. I am here to help you with that. In fact, we're going to do a course uh, starting in February that's called From Garden to City that just tells the whole story of the Bible. And so I encourage you to start thinking, like, how can I make Scripture more a part of my life? And again, I know what I'm doing. Everybody sitting here is like, cool, read the Bible. Awesome. I tried that. I got to Leviticus. My life nearly ended. We've all been there. It's okay. But friends, uh, Peter is saying we have to make these stories our own because it has everything to do with the way that we see our world in the here and now. What God has done in the past is informing our present right now. And so I, I think Peter's word is an urgent word to us. We live in a world of contested stories. We live in a world where us praying against warfare, us praying against nations going to, to battle against one another, some people will be like, that's, that's crazy. Like, you have no power here. You have no agency. But for us as the people of God, we think that prayer actually changes things. We think that there is a different story being written. 
You know, I don't know if you've ever heard or looked at somebody and said, oh, that person can't change. You know, they're set in their ways. The, the, the narrative of the kingdom of God actually says, no, that person can be given a new birth into a living hope that us, where we stand right now, that God can make us new. Don't buy the propaganda of the stories of our world, the stories that tell us we have to get all we can, that we, ha- we can't take care of others because there won't be enough for us. God is inviting us into his story. It is a story of mercy, of grace, and abundance. It is a story that through self-giving and sacrificial love serves the world. We have to begin to immerse ourselves in the story that is the true story of all the world. There's an urgency here because you are going to hear so many stories this year that tell you that, that the way the world works is actually this way. Jesus is inviting us to his way. So the first thing I, I think you need to do in order to discipline yourself, in order to live out the identity that you have, immerse yourself in the story. I'm here to help. My email is ian at ecclesianj.com. Any way I can help you, I will do that. The second way Peter invites us into Verses 14 through 16, he says, like obedient children. And so he calls us back to our, our, our identity. You are sons and daughters of the children of God. Do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Look, Peter's not condemning you. He's not saying, you morons, you should have done better. He's saying, you didn't know. He's saying, you didn't know who God was. But he says in verse 15, he said, instead, as he who called you is holy... Be holy yourselves in all your conduct, for it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So this is God talking as Peter quotes it. You shall be holy as God is holy. Like That's kind of a high bar, right? What, what Peter is saying is that you have been given a new birth into a living hope. It is not a hope that is for the future. It is not a hope that is somewhere far off in the distance. It is a living hope, a hope that, is, that immerses itself in your world in the here and now. And so the second way we discipline ourselves is we respond to God's call to be holy as he himself is holy. Peter's saying In order to go deeper into the world and yet become more different from it, we have to respond to our identity as it has been given to us in Jesus Christ. And we often think of holiness as this kind of stuffiness. Like, you know, think about the times you've seen, you know, quote-unquote holiness portrayed on TV. Like, it's never inviting, right? There's never a warmth to it. But what we see in the life of Jesus what we see in his actions, what we see in the things that he did was that holiness is a, is a way of being in the world that honors God first and invites the world to come near and to warm themselves by that fire. And, and, and really where we started was this question of what does it mean to be home? God is saying that you are home, you are free, you are secure when you are living your life in light of your identity in me. I have given you a new birth into a living hope. I am transforming your life to look like mine. Holiness is where you are home. And Peter calls us to this high and lofty goal, not because it's something that we can achieve if we just strategize, if we just plan it out, if we just have the right resolution. But we can achieve it because we are God's children. 
We have been given a new birth. Peter says, be holy as I am holy. And friends, I don't know if you're like me, but this sense of, of, of restlessness, this sense of homelessness, I'm, I, I see it largely in the American church, and I think God is calling us home. He's saying there is a way towards a, a witness and a faithfulness that is like Jesus. There is a way that he's inviting us into that's different from our own. It's different from the narratives that we've received from our culture. And Peter says that this way is to be holy as he is holy, to live out of our God-given identity. And friends, I want to invite you, as the people of God, as ecclesia, to live out of your God-given identity, to understand that holiness is not something that God is holding over your head, but he's saying that you can step into this reality because I am walking alongside you and empowering you with my spirit. And so if you've ever had that sense that you weren't at home, Jesus tells a story in Luke 15. He tells a story about a son who's far, he's flown far from home. This son thought that if he just got everything that he ever wanted, he asked his father for all the riches that were going to come to him when his father died. And he goes off to a far-flung place, and he spends all his money on anything that he wants because we think that freedom is being able to do whatever we want. And there's this profound moment as Jesus tells this story. This son realizes, he's like, I'm so far from home. And what this son thinks as he sort of has these thoughts is that as he, as he thinks about his father's house, he says, well, even, even the people who work for my father have enough to eat. Even the people who work for my father at least can sustain themselves. I'm here trying to feed myself on what these pigs are eating that I'm taking care of. But the son thinks that he can't actually go home again. He told his father, he says, Father, I wish you were dead. Give me what's mine. He doesn't think that he can go back and be a son again. But he knows that there's at least something there that he can provide for himself with. And so he turns to go home. And as the son turns for home, thinking that he's just going to work alongside his father, not, not, no longer as a son, but as a servant or a slave, as he gets closer to his house, he sees something quite astonishing. He sees his father running to him. And friends, this morning, I don't know where you find yourself. I don't know if you, if you have this sense that if God is home, that he wouldn't welcome you there. But can I just invite you to envision what the son saw as he sees his father running from the doorstep of their house, running to his son to embrace him and to welcome him. The gospel story, the story of Jesus, is about a homecoming for the entire world. All people. This invitation that Peter offers to us is into a new birth, into a living hope and friends, if you're feeling homeless, if you're feeling just anxious in your own skin, like you don't fit anywhere, that's because you were made to be at home with God. And he wants to welcome you home this morning. And so as we gather, what has God done? He has given of his life on a cross so that you would be given new birth into a living hope. Who are we in light of that? We are his children 
And how are we to live out of that identity? To be holy as he is holy. To wrap ourselves in this beautiful story and to see that it is not just life for us, but it is life for the entire world. So friends, as we wrap up this morning, would you just consider what are the ways that you just don't feel at home? And would you envision that God himself is running to you? embracing you, giving you your identity as his daughter, as his son? And would you see that you were made to rest in God? Our hearts will be restless until they rest in him. Would you come home this morning? Let us pray. Beautiful Jesus, Lord, we ask that we would see that there is nothing that would stand between your self-giving, God, your relentlessly running to us, love. God, that home is what we were made for, that feeling of being able to put our feet up, that feeling of feeling secure, not like we're visitors in somebody else's house, but that the, the fridge and the pantry are open to us. God, that we can be ourselves because of who you are, God, and you're calling us to more. So God, I want to pray just for two people here this morning. I want to pray for those in here who don't know your love, God, who don't know what it means to be at home in you. God, all this talk of holiness and all that stuff may feel like a foreign language. But Lord, I know that you do this thing in our midst where we don't quite know what we're getting into, but you just say, come home. And if there are people in here this morning who are sensing that they're just not at home in you, God, I want to just offer your invitation to them. The second, I, I want to pray for the people who have been at this a while. God, the people who feel like they've heard the stories, they've, they've heard the sermons, they've heard all the stuff. God, I want, to, I, I want to pray that we would hear your call to discipline ourselves, not so we could have this like aesthetic faith where we're living our, uh, our discipline out, we're showing you how awesome we are. No, but because the world needs us to be holy as you are holy. God, I, I, I want to pray for those who are uh, just hearing this as a call to, to more. God, to go deeper with you, God, to go deeper into the world, but to become more different from it. God, would you shape us and form us in your image so that we can know your love, God. We can know it as the story that animates our lives and we can know that it is the story that animates this world and that as we as the people of God live our lives in service to others, you will draw all people, Lord Jesus. We love you. We pray these things in your beautiful name, in the, in the name of your Son that leads us home, Jesus, Son of God. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.